This is episode 63 of the Solier Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Michelle Trochet. She is currently an assistant professor in the CSD program, the Department of Biobehavioral Sciences at Teachers College at Columbia University. Additionally, she holds adjunct positions in the departments of neurology and otolaryngology. She completed her doctoral studies at the University of Florida, where she also served as a faculty member prior to joining Columbia University. She is the director of the Laboratory for the Study of Upper Airway Dysfunction. Her research is aimed at improving health outcomes and quality of life associated with disorders of airway protection, such as swallowing and cough. Her research has been funded by the National Institutes of Health, Michael J. Fox Foundation, and Cure PSP Foundation. Her clinical work has mainly been in the area of movement disorders, where she has evaluated and treated the motor speech and airway protective function of hundreds of patients. She has expertise and has mentored students and taught in the areas of cognitive motor relationships, neural myogenic adaptations to exercise and training with emphasis on the swallowing, coughing, and respiratory systems, and clinical disorders of motor speech, voice, and airway protection. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I am so, so, so excited for this episode. I I know how many times do I say that, right? But no, for real, this is like one of those episodes that it's like, oh my God, we've been living under a rock all this time. Where has this information been? Why am I not using it? So this is going to be a two-part series because I think there's so much crazy good stuff in here. So um, this is part one, and I do just want to make the disclaimer that Dr. Troche and I do talk about a lot of different products that are out on the market, and I included a lot of links in the show notes. Uh, we have no affiliation to any products, no endorsement. I'm not getting any advertising dollars for any of these products that are in the links or that we mentioned in this episode. I just want to make that disclaimer. However, we do have a sponsor for this episode, and I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Tim's Medical, for supporting the Swallier Pride podcast. Uh, the TIMS system provides the necessary standards of care for recording modified barium swallow studies. If your hospital is still using a low-resolution DVD or just a fluoroscope to record MBS studies, you aren't seeing all the information required to make an accurate assessment of your patient's condition. The TIMS system records at the maximum resolution of the fluoroscope at 30 frames per second and includes synchronized audio. After a study has been captured, it can be sent to your office for review and reporting using the included TIMS software. The TIMS review software provides all the tools you need to review your studies in slow motion or frame by frame, all while zoomed into seeing the maximum detail. Each swallow can be quickly labeled from a list of predefined consistencies, which is then viewable in packs. Advanced tools allow you to time swallowing events, measure distance, angles, and areas, and telestrate on recorded video to aid in patient education sessions. Tim's Medical has helped hundreds of SLPs just like you navigate the process of securing a Tim's system for their hospital. If you're interested in learning more about Tim's and how it can improve your MBS program, please go to www.timstims.com forward slash swallow or email sales at tims.com. So 
back to this episode. So like I said, this episode was totally <laughs> mind-blowing to me. Um, I don't know if Dr. Shoshay just thought I like didn't have my coffee yet or if I just was looking at her like she had five heads, but she was just saying such mind-blowing stuff to me. But um, after she emailed me and told me about a couple talks she has coming up at ASHA, which I'm so glad she did because I'm definitely going to check them out. So if anybody's going to the convention next week, uh, Dr. Trochet and her colleagues will be talking Friday, November 16th at 8 a.m., Management of Cough Dysfunction in the Patient with Dysphagia, a review of complex cases. Those are always so valuable and helpful. And also on Friday from 345 to 445, Tools of Guiding Clinical Decision-Making and Neurogenic Dysphagia Grand Rounds. So that, that's awesome. That's Friday morning and Friday afternoon. And then I'm speaking Friday morning with Karen Scheffler of solostudy.com. So uh, we are going to be discussing... Uh, fees and MBS studies and really why we shouldn't be calling either of them the gold standard. I'm so honored and excited to be able to do that talk with Karen. She's just so wonderful. So um, what else is new? My 500,000 download giveaway, half a million downloads. Um, We are doing a huge giveaway over on Instagram. I'm going to be starting it in the next day or two. Um, So follow me over on Instagram. It's at Teresa Richard SLP. We've got, I think at this point, we have 13 different companies that are giving away awesome courses and things. Um, So we're going to be doing a giveaway each day. So make sure you follow me, tag your friends to follow me so you guys can all get in on those. So I'm so excited for that. And what I am most excited, I'm so excited about a lot of things this week. Life is good. Life is good. Um, I am about to, well, I am because I'm going to tell you about it right now. I'm about to start accepting applications for my new inner circle leadership program. So I know that I've, you know, we've created lots of waves, lots of waves with this podcast and with the medical SLP solution. And, you know, I would love to be able to meet with a small group of people and be able to really do a deep dive into their goals and what they want to achieve in their career. So what I am looking to do is I'm going to be accepting applications for 20 people because I want to keep this small. So I'm looking for 20 highly motivated SLPs. It's going to be an awesome network of people that just want to get things done in their buildings. So um, this is going to be an awesome leadership group. I'm taking the 20 best applications that I'll be offering an invitation to this program for. It's going to be a four-month program that will include group coaching, individual coaching by me, a two-day live retreat, and support throughout the whole four months so we can really help you nail down your career goals, help you achieve some of those goals, and really set you up for success in your career. That is what I want for every single one of you. I love my career. I love everything that I do. I love what I've created. I love the patients that I treat. I love the SLPs that I work with. And I just, I want to be able to extend my network to a group of highly motivated people that want to do that as well. So the two-day retreat that um, is included in that program, I've got some of my closest, closest friends that have done some awesome things in this field that are going to be coming and speaking to you guys, and it's going to be just a small, intimate group of people. So if you are interested in applying for this Inner Circle Leadership Program, you can go to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash T-R inner circle so like tr teresa richard <laughs> inner circle i couldn't think of like a better <laughs> billy like to click so that's what i did um please only fill out the application if you are so serious about wanting to join this leadership program and just making a huge splash in your facility so um i can't wait to start reviewing the applications um and hopefully accepting people in the next couple of weeks 
Uh, so without further ado, I hope you all absorb every last bit of this interview with Dr. Troche. Uh, the show notes are awesome. There's so many. Uh, Steph, who who is now managing this podcast, Stephanie Jacobson, she's wonderful also. Um, she's included so many great links and everything in this so that you guys can easily find the products that Dr. Troche is talking about. So hope you love it. Good morning, Dr. Troche. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. I'm very excited to be chatting with you today. Yes, I we've had a lot of requests for people to talk about cough reflex and EMST. And I know that's kind of right up your wheelhouse. So I'm so glad that we went right to the source to get, get you on here. Great. Well, like I said, I'm excited. All right. So why don't you tell the people a little bit about yourself? Sure. So um, I am a speech pathologist by trade, but um, I do have my PhD. I completed my studies at the University of Florida. Um, and then once I graduated, I actually stayed on there as a faculty member. So I was a part of the Gator Nation for a long time, still a Gator. Um, but then I made the pilgrimage to New York. And so now I'm at uh, Columbia University Teachers College. And so there I direct the Laboratory for Upper Airway Dysfunction lots of great fellows and students that I get to work with. Um, my research is mainly focused on kind of understanding the relationships between cough and swallowing. And then based on that, developing kind of the best screening, evaluation and treatment approaches for addressing kind of both ends of that continuum, cough and swallowing. Most of my work has been in Parkinson's disease and other neurodegenerative disease, and that's continued since I've been here. I have adjunct positions in neurology um, and otolaryngology, and I try to stay pretty plugged into clinical care still. That's a passion of mine. So we run a clinical research center where patients with any neurologic uh, diagnosis can come and get full evaluations of cognitive linguistic function, speech swallow, cough. Um, and then based on that, we can either provide them with care or um, they can become part of our active research studies. So kind of different things. I like to, I seem to be passionate about too many things. That's all right. <laughs> I love it. I think a lot of us have that problem. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I think that's a trade issue. Yeah. 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 I love hearing that. A few weeks ago, I spoke at the New York City dysphagia group. Yeah, great. And yeah, and I one one girl just kept asking these super great questions. And finally, after she came up and you know, she said, I'm just really interested in why your take on this was that. And I said, Where are you from? And she's like, Oh, I work in Dr. Troche's lab. And I was like, That makes a lot of sense because she was Good. so bright, so intelligent. I was like, Okay, thank you. <laughs> so I won't I won't call her out, but I mean, props <laughs> to you for getting your students to ask these really in-depth questions to really understand the swallow because yeah, it's not just a cough equals thick and liquids as I'm yeah. sure you're going to well, get into here. They learn from me, but I learn from them too. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. That's why I love doing these episodes. Cause I'm every episode I'm like, Oh my God, I didn't know that. <laughs> so, all right. So wh where do you want to start? What do you think we should lead in with? Well, you know, I think just as a field, Certainly, when we think about swallowing disorders, we've been very focused on the swallow. But when we really think about the patients that we see, very often our patients don't just have swallowing problems, they also have concomitant cough problems. And it's something that forever speech pathologists have been paying attention to, but not necessarily kind of in a very specific or quantitative way. So, you know, our, part of our bedside evaluation very often is, did they cough, did they not cough? If they coughed, did I think it was subjectively strong or weak? 
I mean, how many times have we done a fluoro or a fees and seen a patient silently aspirate? So they aspirated, they had airway invasion, but they did not cough in response to that material. Or they did cough, but they didn't properly clear the airway. So it's something that we've known was there. It's not like we've identified something. It's like, oh my gosh, really? I could, you know, I can't believe that. No, it's like we've been noticing these things, but we really hadn't been studying them very specifically, nor have we kind of been quantifying um, those deficits as well as we've been quantifying the swallowing end of the spectrum. So what we've really been trying to kind of promote is this idea of thinking about airway protection as really a continuum of behavior. So certainly at one end, you need to prevent material from entering the airway. And at the other end, you need to be able to eject material from the airway if it does enter the airway, which happens to all of us at some point. And swallowing, if you've done it appropriately, helps to prevent material from entering the airway. But if you haven't done them appropriately, then you need the other end of that continuum, which is effectively coughing um, that material out of the airway. And what we know is that these behaviors are, they share a physiologic space, they, they share neural underpinnings. Most importantly, they all require kind of certain accommodations by the respiratory system. So when you're just kind of breathing normally, you can't just insert swallow and and that's it, or just insert cough and that's it. Your respiratory system has to make certain accommodations. And so both swallowing and cough really require kind of a disruption of your normal breathing. And so for swallowing, for example, from Bonnie Martin Harris's work and Karen Heglin's work, we know that you have to kind of swallow or breathe maybe a little bit higher than your, your tidal volume. And then you normally, most kind of safe, efficient swallows happen on expiration, right? So you're breathing out, you have a swallow pause, then you continue to breathe out. Similarly for cough, we know that the respiratory system has to make certain accommodations. You have to take usually a little bit deeper breath in, your vocal folds have to come together so you can develop develop sufficient subglottal pressure and then bam, this kind of large expiratory event. And so they share these kind of underpinnings. Um, and the same, like I said, a lot of the same neural underpinnings. We know that in your brain stem, like, you know, we know a lot about ventral swallow group or the nucleus ambiguous. These are probably terms that the speech pathologists are are aware of. But what you might not know is that in your brain stem, just like there's a swallowing CPG, there's kind of a respiratory CPG, and there's a cough CPG. And they all kind of share neurons, um, some of which have been identified that actually will kind of like switch their job based on the stimulus. So it's like, oh, this should probably be a swallow or oh, this should probably be a cough. And then those neurons change what they do and either elicit cough or swallowing. But something that we've been particularly interested in is how do we volitionally control the cough or swallow, which is what speech pathologists kind of exploit all the time, right? Swallow hard, you know, swallow this way, swallow the other way, swallow with your tongue hanging out. So, you know, so we know that there is a certain amount of volitional control over swallow and that's one approach to rehabilitating swallow. But what we're also identifying is that cough isn't just a reflex. There's a, not a pure reflex. It also can be suppressed or it can be augmented. And so as speech pathologists, we can potentially exploit that as well uh, to help our patients in terms of their kind of airway 
clearance um, and their response to airway invasion. And we really feel that if we're going to make kind of lasting health uh, improvements in our patients, help them avoid things like aspiration pneumonia, you have to work on both of those ends because I think all of us know the likelihood of us taking someone's swallow to perfect is low. Plus it's natural to kind of sometimes penetrate and aspirate. So you need that ejection mechanism in place. And so I think, and hopefully I'll be able to convince people (laughs) during this podcast, we'll see how that goes, that part of your treatment should target swallowing, yes, but part of your treatment should target cough to get the best kind of long-term outcomes for your patients with dysphagia. Awesome. I think two things came to mind while you were saying that was number one, the whole thought of there being a completely separate central pattern generator for the cough. That was something I didn't think of. I know we have a separate one for chewing and swallowing, and now we have a whole separate one for cough. So that's interesting too. And then also you were saying, you know, we kind of exploit the cough sometimes or we disrupt you know, that neuron pattern. And I think of, you know, our patients, you know, in the dining room and when a nurse will come up and just say, cough, cough, cough. (laughs) So I I think of all the time, how many times are we exploiting what should really be going on? So it's interesting to hear you talk about kind of reversing that pattern. So yeah, and they're all, you know, these different central pattern generators, behaviors, they're integrated, you know. Um, And so, it's probably too simplistic to to only consider, you know, chewing or only swallowing or only coughing in the yeah. patients because of the shared neural underpinnings. They're going to have disruption in all of these. And so you're going to have to think of them in that way, kind of synergistically complementing each other. And if we want to have the most robust, again, outcome for our patients, we need to be thinking about all of those different components, maybe not just one small little part of the puzzle, which is just maybe their swallowing physiology, for example. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. All right. So, you know, as speech pathologists, we learn a lot more about swallowing than we do about cough. And so maybe a good place to start is talking about some of the basics of cough. There are two main types of cough, the voluntary cough and the reflex cough. And they're what their names sound like. So voluntary cough is, hey, please cough. (laughs) And we often ask our patients to do that. Certainly, sometimes it's a compensation we ask of them. Sometimes we see something on an evaluation and we want to see if they have the capacity of ejecting material from the airway or something like that. So that's one type of cough. When we're measuring cough in the lab and in the clinic, uh, essentially, you can really only make measures of the motor response, right? So you can either look at airflow or you could look at EMG. Um, We can look at how the respiratory system is responding, but you're really just looking at the motor side of the behavior. Then there's the reflex cough, which is the cough that we elicit in response to some stimulus in the airway, which could be aspirate or penetrant material. And so when we're looking at that in the clinic or in the lab, we can look the motor side. So the airflow, the respiratory systems response, EMG. Um, But we can also look at the sensory side. So we can look at how much of a given stimulus or how strong does a stimulus have to be to actually elicit the reflux cough from someone. And something that we've been particularly interested in is the urge to cough. So how strong does someone perceive that stimulus to be? Not only do they respond to it, but do they think that they sense it as weak or or strong? And that's actually 
the I'll cut to the chase, but that's actually been a really important indicator in the studies that we've done. And so that's something that we're particularly interested in. And so the way we do that is when we present someone with a stimulus in our lab, we often use capsaicin, which is derived from hot peppers, we present them with stimuli of different intensities, strengths, and then we have them rate how strongly they feel that sensation is. So, and when you're reading the literature on cough, you'll probably see all of those different measures reported, maybe how much of a stimulus it takes to make someone cough, how they might perceive the stimulus. And then on the motor side, a lot of the things you'll see is, you know, how long was that compression phase? So how long is that period where the vocal folds come together and pressure starts to develop? Um, Because we know there's kind of a sweet spot there, right? You all have worked with that patient that has like a long compression phase. So they're kind of and they can't get that strong expulsive event because they don't get that kind of quick opening um, of the vocal folds. So that's something that we pay attention to. And then one of the other big measures we look at is that kind of maximum peak flow from the expiratory event. So what's that highest peak um, that they can produce during the cough. Uh, So those are some of the measures that you might read about when you're looking at the cough literature. That's kind of the intro (laughs) well I think it's so interesting what you said is we learn about swallowing but we don't learn much about the cough and it's like maybe you know fast forward 100 years in dysphagia land we're just fortunate enough to get this small dysphagia course in grad school maybe we'll have an elective on cough or something because I just feel like there's so much it adds so much more to what we don't know (laughs) yeah and it's something again that like we've been including in our evaluations and we think about it when we're treating our patients, but we haven't really approached it kind of, again, in a more maybe empirical quantitative manner. And that's going to be important if we do want to include it. Um, because, you know, even when you think about kind of your, your oral mech exam, um, you often have them cough and you call it weak or strong. And what we know is that perceptually, we're not very good at, at determining whether actually someone has an effective or an ineffective cough. And so, you know, can we have objective ways of, of better quantifying that? You know, all of these things kind of help us as a field too, to be more sophisticated, to be more respected by other professionals, uh, other medical professionals. So I think it's certainly is an area that hopefully more people will get excited about and help us kind of discover more things in this area for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So do you guys include capsaicin when you do your oral mech exam? You know, if people give like a teaspoon of sugar, salt, lemon, you know, do you include capsaicin there or is that just kind of a whole separate? Yeah, no, um, we don't. What we do, and I mean, we can talk about this now or later, but what we do use is peak flow meters to actually test that peak that I talked about that's really important. And they're really cheap devices that you could get on Amazon for like $15. Oh, um, okay. And it's a device that then essentially gives you the value of that peak. And then you can include that in your evaluation report. If you end up targeting cough, for example, then you can have that as an outcome measure. We provide them uh, as part of our cough rehabilitation paradigms. We use them so that patients have almost like a form of biofeedback at home um, so they can kind of track their peak flows for cough. Um, So that's the main uh, approach that we use right now in terms of kind of enhancing the oral motor exam. Excellent. I love just the more quantitative data we can get, the better. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Okay. 
So uh, for a long time, people, uh, researchers, there's a group of researchers that have been studying cough, but most of that research was really in the area of hypertussic cough. So people that cough too much, like chronic cough or cough in response to like asthma or, or some other respiratory disease, a lot less work had happened in the area of people that don't cough enough, right? Which are our patients or don't cough at all. So what we would call hypotussic cough. Um, and so it was in kind of 1999, 2001, that some of the seminal work in that area was done. One study that was really important was a study done by Robert Addington that looked at reflex cough um, in patients with, and saw, looked at the relationship with development of aspiration pneumonia and aspiration and identified a pretty, a very close relationship between these. And um, then there was also a study by Carol Smith Hammond in patients with stroke. The work in Addington's work was also in stroke, um, looking at volitional cough or voluntary cough and airflow, how that related to aspiration risk. And she found that essentially the cough airflow could predict people's aspiration risk. And so at the University of Florida, we got very interested in that work and started to look at whether this also held true in patients with Parkinson's disease. And so a lot of this um, early work was spearheaded by Teresa Pitts. And uh, what we found was very similar results to Carol Smith-Hammond, that if you took just single voluntary coughs from people with Parkinson's, so just cough once, or sequential coughs, which is work I did with Karen Wheeler-Hegland, so <laughs> several coughs in a row, either way, the airflow predicted whether people were at risk for aspiration. In particular, um, our dysphagic patients had longer compression phases. So that period where the vocal folds come together, that was longer. And that peak, kind of the strength of that cough was reduced. So those were the two uh, things that, that we identified most clearly. So then we became very interested in, okay, that's voluntary cough, but how about reflex cough, which is really the cough that we want people that have airway compromise to respond with. And so we did a study in people with Parkinson's disease where we presented them with capsaicin at different intensity levels. And we looked at their, their coughs um, and whether they coughed. And what we found was that uh, certainly there were some differences in our dysphagic and non-dysphagic patients as in regards to the amount of the stimulus they needed uh, to cough. So those with dysphagia needed kind of a, a stronger stimulus to make them cough. But what was kind of even more robust and a stronger effect was that our dysphagic patients perceived the stimuli as very much reduced. So, you know, we would present someone with 200 micromolar capsaicin, which is a very strong stimulus. And they would say, I don't sense it. Like, I don't even... Oh, I, think it's the, I think it's the saline, essentially. Oh my gosh. So, and, and that was something that we saw kind of across the board for our dysphagic patients. So our non-dysphagic patients showed kind of the normal response, which is as the stimulus increases, their urge to cough increased in a, in a relatively linear way. Whereas our dysphagic patients, when we would produce or give them... Uh, 
the stimulus increasing, they would kind of barely sense it, barely sense it, barely sense it. And then when it got to the point that it made them cough, then they would go, oh yeah, that's strong. But that's a problem, right? Because we don't want someone to just cough in response to like a hunk of something in the airway or a large amount of liquid aspirate. We want them responding to kind of smaller amounts of airway invasion too. So we thought, oh, that's, you know, kind of an interesting finding. And so what we decided to do was kind of take all of these data points and put them together. So we looked at in these folks with Parkinson's disease, the measures from voluntary cough, so all of those motor measures from voluntary cough, which we know had shown some predictive nature for aspiration risk. We took the reflex cough measures, so you know the stimulus that the intensity of the stimulus that made them cough, their perception of that stimulus, and the motor side too, how strong then the coughs were. And we just took kind of disease-specific measures. So how long had they had Parkinson's disease? How severe was the Parkinson's disease? Because we thought, hey, maybe it's just that they're getting worse with their disease. And so it's not necessarily anything about their cough. Their cough is getting worse as they get worse. And you know, we're just kind of creating a pretend effect here. But what we found was that it was actually that urge to cough, which was the most significant predictor of our worst swallowers or those that had the worst swallowing safety. We were looking at swallowing safety specifically. And so we thought that again was like, oh, okay. So it's not even about whether or not they're coughing to the stimulus. It's about how strongly they perceive the stimulus. That's the most important indicator. And that was really an eye opener for us. I don't think that was something that we expected to find at all. Yeah, that's super fascinating. Yeah, And so we've really been building off of that in terms of developing uh, ways of kind of evaluating and then how can we actually potentially treat the urge to cough. And these findings aren't, we don't think they're specific to Parkinson's disease. We're not, we know they're not specific to Parkinson's disease. Addington's work, Carol Smith-Hammond's work, that was in stroke. So we know there's that relationship between cough and swallowing, dysfunction and stroke. Emily Plowman has done work looking at this in ALS also these kind of strong relationships between cough and swallowing. I had a PhD student who looked at children with cerebral palsy, relationships between cough and swallowing dysfunction. Recent work by Kate Hutchison in head and neck cancer, which I was even kind of surprised about because I thought, okay, yeah, it makes sense in neurologic populations, but, you know, in more peripheral disease, also this strong relationship between cough dysfunction and issues of swallowing safety. TBI, people with other respiratory illness. So these findings have been, I mean, this has been kind of extended into a lot of different populations. And so I think it really should make us pause for a moment and think, okay, this is probably for real, not just, you know, (laughs) random thing one lab or a couple labs found. And I think it should, you know, perk our interest a little bit about, you know, thinking about the importance of cough in our patients with dysphagia, because clearly there is a kind of a pervasive and a progressive deficit of both cough and swallowing. They're happening together. And again, if you just rehabilitate one and not the other, you're not going to get the best bang for your buck, probably. Absolutely. So... I think like the gigantic red flag that went off for me is how important the sensory component is. I feel like so many SLPs are just so laser focused on 
oh, this isn't moving, so it must be a motor component. So therefore, I'll work on this exercise. But all of this to be is just screaming, holy cow, don't forget about the sensory <laughs> part of the swallow right. as well. Yeah. Right, right. For both swallowing and cough, right, they're sensory motor behaviors. And yeah. so the sensory side is going to inform the motor side. Yeah, yeah. Very much so. And, you know, thinking about the cognitive piece too, right? So it's kind of like a cognitive sensory motor experience. And because this urge to cough idea is really kind of a top down analysis of the strength of a stimulus. And, you know, that's something that we can't ignore. Some recent work by one of my postdoc, she's doing some dual task studies looking at cough. She's looked in healthy young adults, older adults. Now she's looking in Parkinson's disease. And when we're distracted, we're not as we we don't rate the urge to cough as strongly. And if you make someone older and then on top of that give them a disease, that effect becomes even larger. And so we can expect that at mealtime when a dog is barking and the TV is on and you're multitasking, that people are going to have even greater deficits to this this functionality. So that's really something that we need to be, you know, cognizant of as well. It's not just kind of the pure reflex that's impaired, but people's kind of top-down control of these behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. This is so fascinating. I think of, I did a fees on this guy yesterday that had Parkinson's and there was like probably 10 family members in the room that all wanted to be there. And there was so many distractions and it was just, it was chaotic. And finally, I just asked the family members to leave because, you know, sometimes he would cough, sometimes he wouldn't, sometimes he'd cough and be talking to his sister between bite. Like it just got way too chaotic. And so that's so interesting that you said that because yesterday was a a very... Well, and then it begs the question, like it begs the question, which one should we be doing? Should we be taking everyone out of the room and making it an environment that's maybe nothing like what they're really eating in? Or do we keep everyone in there, you know, bringing the dog to and (laughs) and what they're, what, what it's really like when they're eating? I mean, I think the reality is that we need both, right? You almost need to know like their potential. Right, if right. we, you know, took everything away, really had them focus, what kind of physiologic reserve do they have there? But then what is like the real life situation in which they're swallowing and coughing? Because we know I, my dissertation work was actually a dual task study for swallowing. And we found similar things that if, um, especially when patients had cognitive dysfunction, when you present you know, multiple stimuli while they're swallowing, there's an effect there. I mean, it's something that we can't ignore. And so, yeah, we have to be thinking about both ends of that, being sure that we're being ecologically valid, but that we're getting a good sense for kind of the the underlying physiology that we have to work with. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, that's great, Dr. Trochet. Thank you for sharing that. So, you know, what do we do with all this information about cough? I think that there are some things that we can already be implementing or starting to use in the clinic. And then some things that are, you know, we're still working on or figuring out so that hopefully eventually we can translate them to the clinic. One area that I think here in the U.S. we're actually a little bit behind on is in using the reflex cough uh, for screening kind of swallowing safety issues. This work by uh, Addington really inspired Maggie Lee Huckabee's group in New Zealand and Anna Miles to start looking at using reflex cough as a way of screening patients that 
you know, are at risk for aspiration. And they've done some really large studies there where they've taken, uh, they've used citric acid as the, the stimulus for cough um, and looked at kind of cough reflex testing versus instrumental assessment of swallowing. They found that so there were significant associations between the cough reflex test and the cough response to aspiration. Um, and that this sensitivity and specificity was actually based on the concentration of citric acid. They did much larger studies then to see if this impacted long-term uh, mortality or pneumonia rates in patients, in these stroke patients. Um, and they found that if the cough reflex test was incorporated in a, in a standardized assessment, then it actually did have these long-term effects of significantly decreasing pneumonia rates in these patients. Wow. So instead of using kind of a traditional bedside evaluation, enhancing that with the cough reflex testing was better at identifying these patients at aspiration risk and then even long-term decreasing uh, pneumonia rates. And so cough reflex testing is essentially the gold standard for screening in New Zealand and in some places in Europe as well. But that hasn't really made its way to the U.S. And I think- No, you're like blowing my mind right now. Yeah. My brain is blowing out of my head. <laughs> and I think that's a problem. I think especially yeah. in light of kind of the various swallowing screens that we've been using here. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're not- very often standardized across institutions. Certainly in the U.S., we're not all speech pathologists are not using the same swallowing screening. Nursing screens are different. I'm sure this is, I think maybe Marty Brodsky has even talked about these sorts of things with you. But yeah, it's something that, that we haven't used here. And I think it's a real way of enhancing our uh, screenings and our evaluations of these patients. And so I think that's something we have to think about. Karen Wheeler-Hegland is looking more specifically at cough screening using kind of handheld nebulizers, mainly using capsaicin to see how those might work as kind of a portable approach to screening for aspiration risk in patients with Parkinson's disease and others. That work's being done here in the U.S. But I think it's an area where we have some catching up to do yeah. and it's not as if the work hasn't been done. It's been done. It's been found to be effective. And I think we just- Why isn't anybody doing it? Start spreading the news. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. Yeah, I know. I know. Sing it from New York. That's right. <laughs> so I, that's an area that, that our lab, I know that Karen Wheeler-Hagelin's lab and others are, are, are trying to kind of grow um, that work. You know, doing something in a country like New Zealand is very different than, than applying something like that in the U.S. So we have some work to do, but hopefully we can get other people riled up and we can, you know, start to get excited and move forward. I think in that area, I think it would really enhance our clinical practice. Again, I think it would enhance our patients' outcomes and make us more reliable and valid when it comes yeah, to yeah. kind of the screening side of things. So that's certainly an important area of work. I think what's so important is that this really isn't a huge financial burden to do this assessment. You know, I think we're constantly preaching, you need fees, you need fluoro, but these places don't usually have $50,000 in capital money to get this equipment, you know, whereas this is a test that we can easily include to have some quantitative measures. So yeah, and I mean, it certainly isn't something to replace fees or fluoro. Right, it's right, something right. that 
I mean, it, it, it can work in different ways. Like it, yeah, yeah, it can yeah. work as a screening, which is yeah. to identify who should go for fees and flora, right? Yep. So I think that's really the the work that's been done by Megaly Huckabee and Anna Miles. But then also, yes, once you are evaluating the patient, I think it gives you a different type of information at that point, which is, is there their the sensory side of their cough more impaired or the motor side of their cough. And then from there you develop treatment targets. So it has then it has like a screening potential, then just more kind of like evaluation, assessment potential, and I think treatment potential as well. And and it's not just cough reflex testing. So something, some other work that's happened is like I said before, a measure that's often a predictor of of swallowing safety deficit is the the peak flow, that kind of strength of the cough. And like I mentioned, an easy way to do that is to measure it with a peak flow meter. Um, It's handheld, they're cheap. You just (coughs) cough into the device, it gives you a number, that's it. And so there has been some work looking at that as a screening approach. Erin Silverman uh, did some work where she looked at the an analog, like essentially the cheaper version of the peak flow meter and a digital peak flow meter and found that, you know, you can use the analog device and it is kind of predictive of swallowing safety outcomes. That was in Parkinson's disease. And so that work certainly has to be extended into other populations. But that's, again, there's the screening part of it. But then when you're thinking about once you're doing your evaluation, just using it as an objective measure that you have in your report, but then if you treat them, you have it as an outcome measure um, over time. So that's one easy thing that we can be doing immediately to kind of translate this work to the clinic. And I think the other is this urge to cough, like this crazy measure that we didn't expect (laughs) was going to be so fruitful, but it's been found now, you know, time and again, to seem to be very closely related um, to people's kind of airway protective functioning. And something we've started to do in our clinical care is use the modified Borg scale. So it's um, it's essentially a zero to 10 rating where zero is you have no urge to cough at all. And 10 is very, very, very severe, maximal. And so when we're doing our fees or our fluoro, we, they swallow, we show them the thing and we have them rate their urge to cough. And so whether, especially when they've penetrated or aspirated, we like to see, do they even sense it's there? Sometimes, yeah, there's the patient that, you know, what we kind of think would happen. They didn't cough, they didn't sense it. Sometimes they didn't cough and they sensed it. And that has really been kind of an eye-opener for me. You know, you they aspirate and then you say, what's your to cough? And they go, six. And then it's kind of like, well... <laughs> Why didn't you cough? Yeah, right. you know, and they'll say, "Oh, well, you know, it's just that tickle is always there." So I, you know, I don't cough to it because it's just kind of like always there, which then gets back to kind of this augmentation suppression of cough. Perhaps in these people, because that is always happening, so they they have airway invasion pretty consistently. They've either at a brainstem level, we don't know, or kind of at a higher cortical level, have started to suppress the sensation, you know, it's like anything when you have pain and it's always there, you start to kind of not pay attention to it as much. It doesn't feel as threatening anymore. And so they don't respond to it. And so like a really easy treatment target is, Hey, if you feel it, cough, please. And so that's really been kind of 
some low, really low lying fruit that we've been surprised about. So I think that's something that immediately, if clinicians wanted, they could apply to their clinical practice. Just, just ask about people's urge to cough when you're doing your instrumental assessments of swallowing. And it might provide you with, uh, you know, a really easy way to address some of the issue. It doesn't fix the whole thing and never, nothing ever does. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but at least a, a kind of a, maybe one little puzzle piece yeah. can successfully place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is so fascinating to me. I think even just reversing a little bit, um, I, I feel like so many clinicians just feel like trapped almost like they're being begged by their rehab directors to come up with standardized ways of assessment or, you know, they're constantly asking, I need to send this patient for fees. I need to send them to Flora. Well, why? What are you ex- you know, anticipating? What are you seeing? And I think this is just such a great quantitative measure to be able to say, look, this is the data that I have that this person is at a high aspiration risk. Therefore, we need this instrumental mm-hmm. assessment to see what's going on. Yeah. So I think this just helps to empower everyone so much more to give them the data to go to their higher ups to get the tests that these patients need. Yeah. And that's something that we, you know, because this work has now been done in a lot of different populations, you can kind of go to the literature for a sense of what those kind of normal values should be. And it's what we very often put in our evaluation reports. When we do just our screen, we don't automatically do the instrumental assessment, but among the things we do is kind of the cough testing. And so we just have, you know, it shows up automatically in your report. If it's a certain value, then there's a star that says, you know, this is a couple of standard deviations outside the norm. And from the literature would suggest that this person's at aspiration risk. And like you said, it provides kind of a, a quantifiable evidence-based kind of support for your recommendations, which I agree is just so important in our field. Yeah. Do you have those numbers, the, the data points that you could share with everybody, like in show notes? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. absolutely. Okay. If you could send those to me, I can get them written up and we can share them with everybody. Yeah. I'm sure everyone will be like, I want to do this now, but what means what? So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Awesome. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.